Good morning. We're going to be looking at the passage that Lindsay just read for us, Matthew 1, 18 through 25. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to that first chapter in Matthew. Um, and just a little disclaimer, I'm getting over the same junk that everyone in Central Florida has had over the past week. So if I cough or sneeze or have to blow my nose, we're just going to act like it's not happening, okay? Um, Well, let me pray for us as we get rolling here. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are here with us, and we thank you for your presence. We always need you, but I pray that this morning you would make us more aware of our need for you but also more aware of how you meet our needs. Speak to us from your word. Teach us what you will from the story of Joseph and the story of how the Savior came into the world. We ask all these things in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So um, some people here at church have very visible roles Like, I'm up in front of you all the time, but some people have more behind-the-scenes kind of roles, and so I want to acknowledge some people. As I'm sure you noticed when you came in, our lobby has been transformed into a winter wonderland. And so I want to thank um, Kim Johnston for putting a lot of time and energy into the vision behind our lobby and for also... um, whipping the staff into shape and being her little Christmas minions who pulled it all off. So thanks to the staff, thanks to Kim Johnston for decorating the lobby. And um, sometimes as a pastor, you have to stop and address the elephant in the room. This morning, I have to stop and address the eight-foot angel in the room. Um, I want to acknowledge the hours and hours and hours of hard work of Brandy Nix, Jack Michaels, and Ed Jensen, who um, put in so much time to transform this stage into something beautiful. There is over 3,000 feet of twine in the angel and the trees, and because I'm married to Brandy, I hear the step-by-step and know that it was lots of work. So... Um, I don't think anyone would see this and be like, eh, it's okay. Like, this looks amazing. So let's give them a hand, too. Um, And by the way, if any of you can help me figure out how to mount the angel in my office after Advent, (laughs) talk to me afterward. Um, But the, the lobby, the stage, the transformation... The, the wreath, the candle, all of this is because it's the first Sunday of Advent, which means it's Christmas time. And uh, I realize that the arrival of the Christmas season means different things to different people. Students are excited to be out on Christmas break, and kids are excited about presents. Parents are stressed out about presents. Um, <laughs> It brings different things for everybody. There's a lot of excitement in lots of homes, but Christmas also comes with baggage for lots of people. 
It may come with painful reminders of the past, or there may be um, difficult interactions that you have to navigate with family and friends this time of year. And maybe the hardest is the heightened sense of loss for those of you who are lonely or grieving this Christmas. Whatever it is you bring this morning, the real, factual, historical story of Jesus being born is the object of all that's exciting about Christmas. And it's the remedy for all that is difficult about Christmas. A good king has come to set his people free from sin and from death. He has come and he's coming again. Can I get an amen? So if the idea of Advent is foreign to you, I grew up in a church where like, we didn't use that word. Um, so it may be unfamiliar to you, and that's okay. What I would do is invite you to come to the Advent dinner tonight. It's mostly just going to be a family get-together, a time for us to share a meal and just hang out with each other. But there is just going to be a little bit of talking, and we'll explain a little bit more about what Advent is, what it still has to do with us today, and how we can engage with Advent. Also, we have a few resources for you to help you engage with Advent in this season and focus your heart and mind on the worship of the coming King. There's a devotional that you can use once a week to get you into the story and scriptures around Advent. And if you didn't already grab one in the lobby, I encourage you to grab one on your way out. Um, There's a place for sermon notes, there's scripture reading, and reflection and prayer. Also, if you go to orangewood.org slash advent, um, we've put together several resources. You can get a digital version of our Advent devotional there, but we've also got other resources that will help you understand Advent more and give you some other ways to engage with it. Um, so again, that can be found at orangewood.org Advent. But regardless of uh, your understanding of Advent, <clears throat> I won't belabor you with all the history of that now. I'll do that tonight. Um, But in the most basic way, we can say that Advent has its roots in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And of course, there are many skeptics of Christianity who can maybe get behind some of the ethical teachings of Jesus. And I've even heard some skeptics maybe even get behind some of the miracles of Jesus. But the virgin birth just seems like a step too far. It seems made up. But from the very beginning, the virgin birth was a part of the story. It wasn't an add-on that we can do away with if it feels intellectually embarrassing. The Apostles' Creed, which we sometimes read together and after the sermon we'll sing together, dates back to at least 390 AD. And it names things that Christians fundamentally believe. And one of those things is Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. So from the very earliest days in the church, this has been part of the confession of those who call themselves followers of Jesus. But if that feels like it may be too big of a stretch to put your faith in something that bizarre, then you're feeling what Joseph probably felt around 2,000 years ago. We're looking at the beginning of Matthew's account of Jesus' birth today, 
Matthew and Luke both have a birth story of Jesus, but Matthew tells it more from Joseph's perspective. Luke tends to tell it more from Mary's perspective. But our passage today starts in verse 18 by saying, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. That's just the first phrase. But I want to point out something. The Greek word for birth uh, that we translate as, um, well, the Greek word for birth that we translate as birth is actually Genesis. Um, And when you hear Genesis, I know some of you picture Phil Collins drumming in a prog rock band in the 70s. But most of us think of the first book in the Bible. And... uh, Genesis means beginning. It's named after the first line in Genesis, in the beginning. If you look up at the first line of Matthew, the very first verse, it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The interesting thing is the Greek word translated as genealogy in verse 1 is also Genesis. So it's the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. And Matthew chose his words carefully, and his original audience was probably reading this in Greek, and they actually read the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So they would have connected the dots um, in the beginning, in the Genesis. Here's the Genesis of Jesus. So let's look at all of verse 18. It says, Now the birth, or Genesis, of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. In the very beginning of Genesis 1, we see the Holy Spirit also. Verse 2 of Genesis 1 says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was hovering over the face of the waters. So everything was formless and void, and we see the Spirit of God bringing something into existence where there was nothing. And where is the Spirit of God in Matthew, in the Genesis story of Jesus, bringing life into a womb where there was nothing, taking something that was void and creating the Savior of the world? Matthew was not telling any ordinary birth story, and he wanted his audience to see that from the get-go. Then we're introduced to Joseph in verse 19. It says, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So I want to point out something. Verse 18 said that Mary is betrothed to Joseph, which means engaged to be married. We still, you know, might use that word today. But then one verse later, Matthew refers to Joseph as Mary's husband. And it doesn't say Joseph resolved to break it off with Mary quietly. It says he resolved to divorce her quietly. So there's something going on here. Were they betrothed or were they married? In ancient Jewish culture, if you were betrothed, it meant quite a bit more than engagement does today. Betrothal was a legal agreement that was usually arranged between fathers of a bride and a groom. There's a lot that we don't know about Joseph and Mary's story. We don't know if they knew each other prior to being betrothed. We don't know if they were in love. 
We don't actually even know if they wanted to be married to one another. We just know that they were betrothed, which meant legally bound to be married, but not yet living together. See, once a couple was betrothed, the husband-to-be would prepare a place for his bride. And often this would entail building an addition onto the husband's family home. And this could take up to a year. Um, So I want you to think about John 14. If you don't know what John 14 is, you might remember Jesus said, In my Father's house are many rooms. And then he says that he's going to prepare a place for them and that he'll come again and take them to be with him. In other words... Jesus is going to build on many rooms to his father's house and he's going to come back and take his bride to live with him. And that's the day that we all long for. That is the great Christian hope. We live in the time of betrothal. God the Father paid the ultimate price for Jesus, his son, to have a bride, and the bride is the church. It's the family of God. And we're anxiously waiting for Jesus to return and take us home. That's what it meant for Joseph and Mary to be betrothed. And to break the engagement was a big spiritual and legal ordeal on par with what we think of as divorce. That's why it said he was thinking of divorcing Mary quietly. But verse 19 tells us that Joseph was a just man and didn't want to bring Mary to public shame. He was just. How would you define just or justice if you think about it? What would justice be? We usually think it's when someone gets what they deserve. You commit a crime, then justice is to pay the due penalty. But Joseph actually didn't give Mary what she deserved. According to Old Testament law, Mary should have actually been stoned to death for what appeared to be an act of adultery. A woman is pregnant, not by her husband. She's to be stoned. But since that's not what Joseph did, there must be some other sort of justice that Joseph exercised. The prophet Isaiah foretold the coming of God's chosen Messiah. He would be a holy king, but not the sort of powerful king on the throne as the world understands powerful. Instead, the Messiah would be a suffering servant. And listen to what verse 3 of Isaiah 42 says about this Messiah. It says, A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. It's a different idea of justice. The biblical scholar Kenneth Bailey describes the sort of justice that the Messiah will bring forth this way. He says, Justice, as understood by this special servant of God, as neither retributive justice, in other words, you harm me and I will see that you are harmed, nor is it equal application of law. In other words, I pay my taxes and so must you. But here, justice means compassion for the weak and exhausted. 
So Joseph didn't treat Mary according to her sin or what seemed like sin, but he had mercy on her, seeing that she was a bruised reed, weak and exhausted. So in deciding to divorce Mary quietly, rather than having her put to death or cause her shame, he was bringing justice the same way Jesus would bring justice to a weak and exhausted world. But you know what this means. Joseph, the just, was going to divorce his betrothed quietly. It means Joseph didn't believe that this child was from the Holy Spirit. Would you? I want to ask you to try to see it through the eyes of Joseph. Imagine you're a young man starting your adult life, engaged and probably excited to be married, to have your own place, and someday to have children, and then your fiancé ends up being pregnant. And you know you have not done anything to cause this pregnancy. Imagine what you would feel. We don't know exactly how Joseph found out. It just says Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, which is like, that's weird, right? How did he find out? But can you imagine what that conversation might have sounded like, Mary trying to explain it to Joseph? Hey, it's okay, Joseph. I'm still a virgin. I'm pregnant from the Holy Ghost. I'm having the Son of God. And Joseph is going to think, either my betrothed is a crazy lady, or she thinks I'm an idiot. Joseph had a dilemma, because if he followed through with the marriage, and he told people the baby wasn't his, he'd subject Mary to at least public ridicule, but possibly being stoned. But if he said nothing, everyone thinks he's the reason Mary is pregnant. And he must have felt hurt. He must have felt confused. He probably felt betrayed and utterly disappointed because it's like everything he had been working toward has just fallen apart. Can you feel the tension in this dilemma? Today, for Advent, we lit the candle that represents love. It represents God's love for us. But if you really put yourself in Joseph's shoes, it was an extraordinary act of love for Joseph to resolve to divorce Mary quietly. It's probably not what most of us would have done, right? To not act out of his hurt. This should give us pause when we feel hurt and when we feel betrayed. It should make us ask, what is justice? What is love? even toward the person who hurt me. Well, let's continue reading in verse 20. It says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That phrase, angel of the Lord, is used a lot throughout the Bible in stories that you're probably familiar with. Remember Moses and the burning bush? You know who appeared in the the burning bush? It was the angel of the Lord. 
where when Abram was going to sacrifice his son Isaac, but someone stopped him, it was the angel of the Lord. Or maybe you remember the story of Balaam and his animal, (laughs) his donkey. Balaam's like kicking this thing and beating this donkey because it's stopping in the road. You know why it stopped in the road? Because the angel of the Lord was blocking the donkey's way, but Balaam couldn't see it. It still remains somewhat mysterious to us exactly who the angel of the Lord is, but this much is clear. When he comes, it's a holy encounter. And the person who is encountering the angel of the Lord never has any doubt in their mind who they are encountering. And the words of the angel are the very words of God. So this had Joseph's attention. In verse 21, this is what the angel of the Lord said. The angel of the Lord. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, the name of the baby may be the most important part of this whole story, but it's easy to miss. But I want you to think, why the name Jesus? In Greek, it's Jesus. So you can probably hear how it got to Jesus and got to Jesus in English. But Jesus is a Greek version of a Hebrew name. The Hebrew name is Yehoshua. But it sometimes gets shortened to Yeshua. And that's where we get the name Joshua. Joshua was a fairly common name in the Old Testament because there was a famous Joshua in the Old Testament. Do you remember what Joshua did? He led the Israelites into the promised land. But I want you to remember this. If these first century Jews were reading this in their Bible, they're reading it in Greek. So what they're reading is Jesus, Jesus, led the Israelites into the promised land. So the angel told Joseph that Jesus will save his people from their sins. So the question is, who are his people? And it would be simple to say that Jesus' people means the Jews. But if you look at the first 17 verses of the book of Matthew, what comes right before this passage, you get Jesus' genealogy. And in Jesus' genealogy, you get men and women, you get Jews and Gentiles. In other words, you get all kinds of people, and they're all sinners. That's why they all needed saving. But it gets even better, if you can follow me. The Hebrew word, Yehoshua, means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is the divine name of God. So let's look at verse 21 again, but we're going to sub in the meaning of Jesus' name. Do you see it there? She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. So who saves? Yahweh saves. Who will save the people from their sins? Jesus. So who is Jesus? Jesus is Yahweh. It's right here 
in the first chapter. The lead up to Jesus as Yahweh was supposed to be a lot better than that. But. <laughs> All right, let's look at verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the prophet that Matthew refers to is Isaiah, and he's connecting the birth of Jesus back to the prophecy of the Messiah in Isaiah 7. So a question that you may have, in fact, I'm wondering if you have this, if he says they're going to name him Emmanuel, why didn't the angel tell Joseph to name the baby Emmanuel? Anybody think that? Just me, okay. (laughs) God with us is not Jesus' name. It's his identity. In the very last line of the book of Matthew, this same gospel that we're looking at, following Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the last thing Jesus says to his followers, behold, I am with you. To the end of the age. He is Emmanuel, God with us in the person of Jesus. His name is Jesus, Yahweh saves. His identity is Emmanuel, God with us. Now, I seriously doubt Joseph had put all that together. But we do know that something about that encounter with the angel of the Lord changed Joseph. We know this from the last two verses. When Jesus woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. After this encounter with the angel of the Lord, Joseph did not divorce Mary quietly. He took her as his wife, and he named the baby Jesus, exactly like the angel had told him. So something changed for him. But this must have hurt his pride on many levels. And at this point, I'm going to tell you a really dumb analogy, if I can get through it. So people now tease me and say that, I always talk about how I used to be in a touring band, blah, blah, blah. Every sermon, oh, Mark was in a touring band. Okay. Here's the thing. When you're not in a touring band, you think being in a touring band is like being up on stage under the lights and stuff. When you're in a touring band, that's just an hour and a half of your day. The rest of it is like sitting in a van, eating junk food, like sleeping in weird places and stuff like that. But since you're on the road all the time, the majority of the time that you use the bathroom, it's at a gas station. Um, This is kind of gross, but I think many of you are going to relate. The best scenario is when you can go to a gas station that's like a big truck stop where they actually clean them. And there aren't like 500 people a day using that one stall. But usually you're in the middle of nowhere and you're in a small gas station and it's a one-seater 
you've got to wait in line. And then you go in, and this happened so many times, like, I don't even have a single story. Like, it happened probably a couple times a week. Like, you go in, it's just like, ho! Like, as soon as you get in there, like, it's destroyed. I won't get into the details, but it's like, somebody has done some stuff and did not care what it looked like when they left. You know what I mean? Also, side note, I don't know who thinks that we are deciding who we're going to vote for by reading the the bathroom walls in a gas station. (laughs) There's always, like, helpful information written on the walls about (laughs) the president. But anyway, so... But this happened so many times, like, I come out, and there's a stranger waiting for it, and, and I just, like, everything in me wants to be like, dude, that was not me. <laughs> like, I just, I was just washing my hands. I didn't even go near the toilet. But all you can do is just go out, and you're like, anybody been there? Somebody's been there. Yeah, so... That is a really dumb comparison to what it must have been like for Joseph to have to marry this woman who's pregnant. And either he says, she's pregnant from God, and people think she's crazy, or he he says, I'm not the dad, and people are like, what, you're still going to marry her? Or he says, I am the dad, and it's like, oh, well, this Joseph guy, so... What can you say? He's in a dilemma. I care so deeply what people think about me that it will ruin my day to have a stranger think that I made a mess in a public bathroom. (laughs) But if you are justified before God, you do not need to be justified before any man or woman. That's what we have in Jesus. We are justified before God. And I have to believe that Joseph's encounter with the angel of the Lord gave him what he needed to endure the ridicule that was probably put his way, to let him brush off the whispers and the rumors about him. When Jesus was born, I imagine there was a strange mix of emotion for him. As the wise men and shepherds arrived, he must have felt a sense of wonder and awe and relief that he wasn't delusional. But I also imagine that he felt unsure of his place because this wasn't actually his baby. Mary was the special chosen one, not him, right? The, The wise men... And the shepherds, they came to see Jesus, not him. He was just a poor young carpenter. But even though we know Jesus reflected the glory and character of his heavenly father, I imagine he learned something about being just and kind and loving from his earthly father. And at the very least, we know that he learned carpentry from his father. And it's really cool. I tried to find this quote. I can't remember where it's from. But Justin Martyr talks about in the second century, people were still using plows that Jesus and Joseph made because they were quality craftsmen. A hundred years later, people are still using tools that Joseph made. 
He was a just man. We don't hear a lot about Joseph after his birth story. He was at the temple for Jesus' first Passover when Jesus was 12. You know that story where they have the home alone moment with Jesus. Um, By the time Jesus is 30, it seems like Joseph was probably dead, even though Jesus is referred to as the son of Joseph occasionally. And in John 19, there's a moving scene as Jesus hangs on the cross and he tells his friend and disciple John to treat Mary as his own mother. And it's recorded that from that hour, John took Mary into his home. And we'd have to assume that this meant that Mary was a widow and needed to be taken care of. But Joseph played an important part in the story. He played a part similar to the part that any follower of Jesus is called to play. And this is what I mean. Joseph was faced with an unbelievable story. Here, it's normal and exciting to celebrate this story. When we leave these walls, it's ridiculous to people. It's nonsense. Joseph's fiance was pregnant while still a virgin, and she claimed the pregnancy was from the Holy Spirit. But then Joseph had a holy encounter. An angel of the Lord confirmed that what sounded impossible and implausible was actually true. And though it would be incredibly costly to Joseph, it was very, very good news. But the encounter took place in a dream, so even though the encounter changed the entire trajectory of his life, he couldn't prove it. And neither can any of us. Not definitively. But anyone who's ever believed in Jesus knows that it was more than mere intellectual assent to some data. None of us come to Jesus apart from the Holy Spirit moving in our hearts and giving us the gift of faith. The same Holy Spirit who hovered over the waters when all was formless and void, the same Holy Spirit who brought forth life in Mary's womb, is the one who opens our eyes to see the truth and beauty and hope and glory of the gospel. Apart from that, it just all seems like foolishness. So if you're a follower of Jesus, there was a point, and probably multiple points, that something changed for you. Something changed in your mind, in your heart, something that you can't prove or even properly explain, but it changed you. And it may not have even happened in a single moment in time. It may be hard for you to figure out when it happened. But I'm asking you to look back on those moments in your life without cynicism, without chalking things up to I was just young or it was sensationalism and I was just being emotional. But look back on those moments when you experience something and remember the awe and wonder for this person named Jesus. He's our king and he's closer than any of us realize. He loves us more than words can express. And the only way for us to begin to know how much he loves us was for him to humble himself, to become like us, to cry like us, to sweat like us, but to do all of this without ever sinning. He humbled himself, the Apostle Paul says, 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, Yahweh saves, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus came into the world in a very small, humble, and even embarrassing way. But when he returns, he will return in power and glory, and the whole world will know. That's what Advent is about, is our longing, our waiting for that day. So pray with me. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you chose not just to use Mary, but you chose to use Joseph, an ordinary man. And that you choose to use ordinary men and women like us. Lord, as we face what seems intellectually embarrassing, Give us faith. Make us sure of your word and remind us that you're making all things new and that you're coming back. We pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.